Welcome to an O'Reilly Media Podcast. This is your host, Nicole Tache. Today, I'm speaking with J.P. Phillips, a platform engineer at Compose on IBM Cloud. Compose on IBM Cloud takes care of running databases for teams so they can focus on building their apps. JP builds out the backend and was the lead on bringing Elasticsearch, Redis, RethinkDB, and RabbitMQ to Compose. We're going to be discussing containers and Kubernetes today, some of the reasons behind their rapid adoption, some use cases, and how enterprise developers can get started using these tools. JP, welcome to the O'Reilly Media Podcast. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for having me. First, could you please tell us a bit about the work you're doing at Compose on IBM Cloud? Sure. So if you go back about uh, five years, we, at the time, were solely providing MongoDB as a service. And we saw most teams, you know, while they had a primary database, they also had other secondary ones or they had different types of databases. So we decided at that point to start offering different types of open source services. And in doing so, we developed our own orchestration system um, that was really tuned for running stateful systems. So I helped a lot with that. And then once we had that up, you know, the first one was Elasticsearch. And then after that, we added several others like Redis, Postgres, and RabbitMQ. Um, we're up to about 10, 10 services at this point. Mm-hmm. So there's growing interest in Kubernetes and containerized environments. Uh, our recent Strata Data Conference in San Jose uh, featured a lot of sessions on the topic, some, some about running Spark natively on Kubernetes, uh, running HDFS on Kubernetes, NLP on Kubernetes. And I wonder if you could speak to what is fueling the adoption of containers and Kubernetes. Yeah, so containers are... Sort of the first, I think, real use case we have for being able to package an application and sort of filling that promise of, you know, running it anywhere. You can run on your laptop and then the, the same image you run on your laptop is what's going to run in all your different environments. So that's dev, you know, staging and in production as well. Um, so that's sort of like the first core piece is you need a way to easily like a consistent delivery mechanism. And, you know, so Docker is a big popular there, but there's been some newer projects uh, like Rocket and Clear Containers that are basically creating, giving people options, which I think is really good. And then Kubernetes, you know, is basically born of an internal project at Google. So it's it's a proven design. And it's to me, it's kind of creating a, a unified language that, that everyone can speak, whether that's, you know, the app, application developer, the apps team, and... So when it comes to actually running the system and understanding how it works, it's it's consistent across the board and, and across companies. And so to me, Brandon Phillips, who was the CTO at CoreOS, who is just now part of Red Hat, he said, and this is sort of paraphrasing, we're no longer really talking about things at the host or the process level, that Kubernetes is really creating this, this layer of abstraction that we can all use to communicate. Mm-hmm. And I just think that really speaks to um, the, the general audi- audience and and it really kind of helps teams, I think, adopt it easier because the way they look at solving a problem is going to be the same way as, you know, the person next to me is going to look at solving it. Yeah. So I think my next question, you, you're just starting to touch on this. Maybe you have touched on it. So looking toward enterprise developers specifically or anyone building and deploying containerized apps at scale, why might they use Kubernetes and what problems does Kubernetes and containers solve in the enterprise? Yeah, I think... It's, it's a great question. Um, prior to joining Compose, I sort of worked at one of your l- more typical legacy enterprises. And 
I think one of our biggest problems, and I, I want to say it's probably pretty common, is we had a lot of unused capacity. So, you know, you basically have your, your app servers for, you know, app XYZ, and then you've got load balancers, and then you've got another set of servers for databases. And then, so everything they really wanted to kind of, you know, have its own little environment. And at the time, the you know, biggest way to do that was servers, and then VMs were really starting to take off. And I think VMs helped some because you could basically have a, one big underlying host and provide different you know virtual environments on top of that but then kubernetes really takes this a step further and allows you to fully utilize all of your available capacity to schedule and run your systems but you're also still getting a lot of the benefits of that same level as of isolation and but you're doing so at a really a, a more consistent practice and so the other thing is it creates a very nice paradigm for designing and implementing full-featured environments. So really one of the big challenges I had, you know, so way back then was, you know, we needed a dev environment and we needed a staging and then we needed an environment just to like test a small change in. And then we needed obviously production and you really want those to sort of all be the same. You want to know that, you know, the code you deploy to one is going to work the same in the other. Mm-hmm. And you know, to me, the, Kubernetes, the way that they've designed Kubernetes and obviously its use of containers to, to actually run your apps has become very powerful. Um, it, it, to me, it, it really gives a team confidence that the process of moving an app from their laptop through all of the different environments and into production, that they're going to you know, really be successful at the end of the day. And they're not going to run into a lot of issues where, you know, well, it worked on, you know, basically, you know, it worked on my laptop. Why does it work in production? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's going to be huge for enterprises as sort of the adoption really increases and, and spreads more to some of your more legacy places. Um, because a lot of those are, are really just kind of still getting an understanding of, of containers and how to package an application in a container. But then you kind of sort of need to take it a step beyond that. So packaging it, then you get into running it, and then you want to run it at scale. And that's where I think Kubernetes really just kind of takes it the next step is being able to run your app at scale in a very consistent and unified way. Kelsey Hightower, a high-profile dev advocate at Google, has talked about what you were just describing there. Uh, He's had many talks on Kubernetes and containers, and I think you've interviewed him uh, as well. And he talks about just this containers allowing you to package your application from end to end and turn over the box to a team to run it on the platform. And I wonder if you can speak to some enterprise use cases where a platform can do this kind of heavy lifting of scaling and responding to users. Yeah. So, you know, it was great talking to Kelsey. He's really a great advocate for not just Kubernetes, but, you know, how to do things best you know, what is it that he's, because he's taken the time to talk to all these different companies, he's really getting a good feel for what teams are doing and where they're successful and, and how it is that they're successful and really kind of bring that back to the, to the broader audience. So to me, there's actually a lot of great work going into having systems sort of run on autopilot. So there's, you know, that's both at the node cluster level, but then also we're, you know, it's going a step further and taking it to, you know, the app level. So in Kubernetes, there's concepts of a cluster autoscaler. So you can basically, you know, in most cloud providers, you can configure it such that if you're at a certain capacity or you're hitting certain levels of CPU, it'll just automatically add another node to your cluster. And that's when Kubernetes kicks in and says, hey, you've got more capacity. I can now shuffle around some of these apps to distribute them more and the system can just continue to run as is. And then the newer project is the horizontal pod autoscaler. Um, it's backed by basically having metrics of your system constantly being gathered, whether that's CPU and memory. And then the newer one is basically letting you to, letting you to capture custom metrics. 
such that you could tell the system, hey, if if my you know my queuing system, if I'm you know hitting a certain threshold, then I need more workers. And so when that happens, you can figure and say, hey, I've hit this threshold, scale my workers up by X amount. And so again, it's sort of this notion of being able to put the system on autopilot so that you're not having to constantly monitor it. And it's being more proactive really, versus like I think the more legacy approaches, you know, let's create alerts and let's create some monitoring around it. Well, in that case, you have to have people looking at the mo- at the dashboards. You have to have an individual responding to an alert. And I think being able to really push the system forward, it's, it's going to be giving us proactive approach to responding to, you know, custom metrics that I as a you know, developer can implement. And then I can easily hand that over to, to the operations team. And they understand that, you know, they're not going to get paged in the middle of the night because the queue's getting backed up. I've you know configured the system to really kind of take 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 the wheel and um, you know drive it for me. Mm-hmm. So you, I think you were just touching on some of the new features of Kubernetes. So it's it's a tool that's about four years old now, and I understand it's matured quite rapidly. What is the current state of Kubernetes? So if you you know listening to a lot of the other you know the people who work with it more directly. Um, it seems to me the current theme is really around stability. Um, so it's promoting the, the API objects out of alpha to beta or beta to GA. Um, more specifically, over the last year, we've, we saw uh, RBAC, which was basically you know, for role, role-based access control. Um, and then apps, so that's like the deployment API object. Uh, stateful sets became GA, which was a very big deal. And then most recently, I think it was as of yesterday or the day before, the, the notion of a network policy API object. So this is allowing you to basically define a, a standard network policy that says only app, you know, ABC can talk to app XYZ, but can't talk to, you know, app one, two, three. You can just apply this very generic network policy and all of the actual underlying implementations, whether that's Calico, um, or we've actually implement that network policy and put those constraints in place for you. So I think you know stability is a big one. Making cluster upgrades and the maintenance sort of a more simpler task because a Kubernetes release schedule is you know every three months. You, it kind of puts it's in a it puts the operations team in a very unique position to where you want to stay up to date because of all of these changes going on and you want to take advantage of them. So making cluster upgrades really just super simple uh, looks to be a big one. And then also as far as the code base, the, I know a lot of work's been going into basically splitting it out, uh, pieces of it, such that cloud provider specifics can go in their own repo. So like the AWS autoscaler can be outside of the Kubernetes core. And that's what will really help, I think, with basically making core very constant and not a lot of changes. And then people you know, in the surrounding uh, basically community can can really start building on top of it. What is the future of Kubernetes? So uh, like I was just saying about how they're sort of splitting up the code base, I think for the core, it's probably going to be a little boring. Um, but this is a good thing because that really means stability. And when you're looking at enterprises and their adoption, they kind of want boring. They want you know stability. They don't want to see a lot of big changes every couple months. So to me, the most exciting work is taking place in the extended ecosystem. So you have projects like Helm, which is all about basically packaging your app and, and being able to configure it the same way across environments. Um, Istio, which was a project co-developed by Google, IBM, and Lyft. And it's basically giving you a network control plane. Uh, and it's all using the Envoy proxy technology developed by Lyft. Um, so Cilium is a very new project. It's, it's a network and security 
uh, API. So it sort of has ties into projects like Istio. Um, and then there's Jaeger, which is distributed tracing. So when you look at sort of the, the observability landscape, you've got monitoring, you've got logging, uh, and you have tracing. You know, tracing is the one where it's sort of like the third leg that I think is becoming more and more popular. Uh, so having a system like Jaeger be easily deployed into your Kubernetes environment and really kind of give you more, really more insight into your microservices, um, I think that's going to play a huge role there. And the last thing is, so there's this pattern of called operators that was sort of coined at, uh, by CoreOS. They created the first one called the Prometheus operator, uh, and it takes advantage of third-party resources. And what that's really for, I think, is when you're looking at more stateful systems, so things like Prometheus, uh, database technologies like MongoDB and Postgres and Elasticsearch, those aren't, you have to sort of treat those differently. They're not state, they're not, they carry state, so, and they require a lot more care and, you know, management. And so basically be, being able to build these operators such that you can take the knowledge I have as an individual and really put that in code and, and put it in a system and let the system run it, um, I think it's going to be very powerful. And so really as, as adoption continues, I think best practices will become more known because I think that's really one of the hardest things is to keep up with all the changes. What's the best practice? Um, that's from, you know, whether security or, you know, how do I, you know, do backups? How do I manage the disaster recovery of the system? These are all best practices that I think as a, as a larger community, we're going to continue to kind of grow into. Um, and so again, more adoption, I think just the more best practices we're going to see come out of that, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Right. Great. For enterprise developers who are new to containers and Kubernetes, um, you've done a great job of, of, of explaining these and, and their value and their utility. Um, how do you recommend they get started? What tips do you have for becoming productive with, uh, with containers and Kubernetes in production? Yeah, so there's actually, a, there's tons of resources out there. Um, so they actually just recently updated the Kubernetes doc site to where it's, uh, it really more targets the audience. So if you're an operations person, you're doing more administrative tasks, they basically a series of, of tasks there. But if you're on the application side, you're, you're going to be the person you know, de developing the app to run on Kubernetes. It gives you a different set of tasks to really become familiar with the system so that you can you know, more fully take advantage of the project. Um, one that I love is called uh, TGI Kubernetes. So it's, it's done by Joe Beta at Heptio. Uh, he basically has a YouTube series that he does every Friday and he just picks different topics and you really, it's fun to watch Joe Beta, who is one of the three original creators of Kubernetes, use the system and try to understand some of these projects that are being created for it. There's the Kubernetes Up and Running book. There's Kubernetes the Hard Way, which Kelsey does. Um, if you're trying to get more familiar with the operations aspect and just really the internals, that's a great resource. Uh, Q Weekly is a mailing list that I, I like to rely on. It basically just gives you links to all different sorts of uh, posts and articles uh, and even uh, podcasts and, and YouTube videos. And then another one, uh, same Lachlan Evanson. I think I was pronouncing that right. If you just Google Kubernetes Crop Hunter, you'll see it. He basically does a bunch of YouTube videos, basically taking projects for a spin, talking about them, showing you how to get them set up. And then there's, there's the CNCF they're starting to develop actual certifications. So there's one already available now for uh, super administrators, but they're looking to introduce one for application developers as well. And the last thing is a uh, Katakoda. They're basically giving you some nice little tasks in a, in a playground to kind of learn each little piece part of Kubernetes. 
so those are all the ones that I sort of, you know, go to on a weekly or biweekly basis just to really kind of get it, continue to get a feel for what's going on in the community um, because it's almost impossible to keep up with everything. So, you know, over time, I've really sort of honed in on the ones where I feel like give me the, the information that I'm looking for. So I think that's the biggest thing is you'll start to more naturally understand, okay, these sets of resources are where I'm getting the most value and you'll just, you'll just kind of keep getting content over and over from them. Mm-hmm. That's a terrific list of resources. I think our audience will really appreciate that. Thank you. This has been a, a very interesting discussion and uh, I, I thank you very much for joining us, JP. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me again. And, you know, Kubernetes, it's, it's really a ton, a ton of fun to talk about. And it's, it's fun to see because it's really changing, I think, the landscape um, across the board. I don't really see a single area of our world where it's not going to have a big impact when, you're, when we're looking, you know, three, four years from now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, it definitely does seem that way. Well, thanks very much again. Yeah, thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. You too.